You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Y'all, welcome in to another edition of the Barton and Bud podcast. We probably need to start this podcast by giving a special shout out and congratulations uh, to Barton Simmons, my normal co-host, for becoming a hashtag girl dad for the third time. A beautiful baby girl born, what, Friday, I think it was, and uh, mom and baby are doing well. Very excited about that. And uh, Barton was very gung-ho that he was going to be able to podcast uh, all throughout paternity leave, and uh, Luke and I are my 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 manager, Luke Stampini, said, hey, just in case, make sure uh, make sure somebody else is available. And uh, talked to Barton last night, and he said he had really not slept yet uh, in about four or five days now. So enter the picture, Josh Pate. Josh Pate, you know him of Lake Kick and Lake Kick Extra podcast and YouTube show. Josh, what's uh, what's going on, man? You, you guys, let me take my gum out first. You don't chew gum on the show, do you? It is um, – yeah, I mean, it's great to be here. I sent, I sent Barton a text yesterday. I told you, brother, I don't know if you've seen the news on Twitter – but you had another kid. So congratulations. And he took it exactly how you would think he'd take it. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, I think he's going to try to get back next week. But if he doesn't, I mean, hey, he might get Wally Pip, dude. This is, this is I think we got a pretty good show today. Yeah, we do. We do the Wilfong whip around with Steve Wilfong all the time. And like, he's got so much stuff coming in. There's constantly dings and buzzes all over the place. And I think that Barton's dings and buzzes will just be wails and cries from different rooms in his house. And I think it adds a lot of context. and It adds character, I think, if you do it right to a podcast. I agree. Yeah, it, it definitely does. And if you guys are in most of our meetings, Barton usually takes his meetings outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I don't know if it's hot in Nashville or not. I'm, I'm one of those remote employees, but it it looks hot. And uh, yet it's it's still a lot quieter to be outside rather than, uh, than inside there. Also want to give a special shout out to our listeners. 450 ratings. Uh, and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Guys, that's awesome. We've only been around for like three months now, and we're closing in on 500, so very cool on that. Also, uh, be a a good listener, and go give Josh Pate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to our 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Josh does a really good job. Twice a week or three times? Bud, we're twice a week right now. We would love to make it three times a week, which is, of course, largely contingent on there being a football season. And uh, I don't think you and I are in the camp just yet of saying, screw it, we're going to torch it to the ground and just talk about, um, I don't know, America's got talent for the next 12 months. So, yes, we are very hopeful football season and very hopeful we'll be able to go to three nights a week format. I think we're going to have a football season. And uh, even if I didn't think we we're going to have a football season, I would continue to preview a football season as long as the conferences are saying, that we're going to have a football season. And then each week uh, when I host the brainstorm meeting, I'll just tear my hair out and come up with a brand new plan uh, about what we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. But since the conferences did give us something to talk about, Josh, we probably should get into that. Uh, Conference-only scheduling announcement coming so far from the Big Ten and the Pac-12. Uh, what, what was your reaction? I don't, I don't think we've had a chance to talk about this yet. 
My reaction was not surprised at the announcement or the spirit of the announcement. It was just the timing of the announcement. And I think that's kind of the feedback. You know, Brandon Marcello's done a ton of great reporting on this, and that's largely the sentiment he echoed from a lot of people from the SEC to the ACC. I know Chip Brown over at Horns 24-7 had a lot of insight from the Big 12 side of things. And everyone's reaction, I didn't hear anyone say, how dare you switch to a conference-only format? It was a bunch of um, could you not have given us a little heads up? I mean, like we were, we were essentially in the break room this morning talking about this over coffee and you didn't mention a word about it. So, I mean, I understand it. And I also understand on the other side, the pushback from fans who understandably want to know, Hey, how come, um, FSU can't go to Florida five minutes away, but they could potentially play a game against like Virginia tech. And once you get that explained to you, it makes more sense the messaging I don't think has been handled quite as well as it could. So it is very confusing to a lot of people. And and I I think your point there about the non-conference games is probably the main reason why the SC and the ACC have not announced that that they're going to do that yet. Because my thought is almost the people who say it's not really more dangerous to play a non-conference game as long as everybody has the same testing protocols, they're, they're right. It's not more dangerous. It's just really a money thing about let's let's make sure that ESPN writes us that check for these SEC, ACC conference championship games. Let's get those division games up front. Uh, but at the same time, if if you told me, hey, they're going to play Florida, Florida State, Florida as game number nine or game number ten, like like if we are so lucky to be able to play eight or nine games in the fall, and you and we get there, then yeah, you guys can go ahead and play that. I think both schools would say. Absolutely. So maybe it's, hey, this this like bonus 10th conference game, you know, hypothetically, if you already have an established like non-con rivalry that you want to play in that final game, knock yourself out. Cool. Like it, it's not going to matter. We already have the division games, uh, you know, division games scheduled. But speaking of scheduling, I man, I'm kind of excited about this a little bit. Like we're going to get to see some matchups, especially in these leagues that only play eight conference games that we don't get to see all that often. You know, I, I what are some games, if you ran the SEC or the ACC, that you'd want to say, hey, like I, I think we should probably look into scheduling this because this is going to be fun for the fans? Well, in the ACC, I mean, it's a lot of it's contingent on what they're going to do with Notre Dame. You know, if Notre Dame's involved, I, I hope they keep Clemson Notre Dame, obviously. I would, you know, I'd love to see like a Notre Dame, North Carolina. I'd love to see Clemson, North Carolina in the regular season for that matter. But I mean, you know where I grew up and what I grew up covering. So I always gravitate towards the SEC. And it seems like Alabama and Florida meet about once every third decade. And so I'd love to see a matchup like that. I'd love to, I'd love to see both Florida and Georgia play both LSU and Alabama. When's the last time Florida went to Alabama? It's got to be like 2011 or 2012 ish, right? I want to say it was the 2011. It was urban Meyer was still the head coach. It was his last season, I believe. So it was what John Brantley as the QB, been, yeah. and that was yeah. in Tuscaloosa. Like Florida needs to go to Tuscaloosa mm-hmm. for sure, and that that would be that would be awesome. Uh, I, I think a chance and, and shout out to our Go Gold, Balls twenty four seven podcast. They they had one from the SEC that they, they suggested, and I I agree with it. Tennessee Auburn is one of these rivalries that I think even if you're from the South, you don't necessarily think of as a traditional rivalry, unless you're probably over the age of like 45, right? Because then you grew up watching ball in the 70s and early 80s, and those teams did frequently play 
basically every year or, or close to it. More recently, they haven't played you know every year. I, I didn't. Grow, I mean, I'm I'm 35. I didn't grow up thinking Tennessee Auburn is a big time rivalry, but they're fairly close geographically. The the last time they played was what on, on the plains in Pruitt's first year when they when they pulled that upset. Let's have Auburn make make a return trip to Knoxville. That that could be fun. Well, that's the beauty to me of geographically, you know, everyone's talking right now about let's make sure that teams that are more condensed geographically play each other. It limits travel. Well, I mean, that's kind of the nature of the landscape of the SEC anyway. I mean, especially if you're kind of located towards the center of it, you take a bunch of bus trips every year. You know, Auburn will have years where they only get on a plane a couple of times. And the other thing is all the states pretty much border each other. So you got a lot of those unnatural quote unquote rivalries, you know, to the either the casual fan or the younger fan that either A, used to happen on the regular a long time ago, or B, even if they didn't, you know, like Tennessee, South Carolina, their division, so they play every year, but even if they didn't, when you have states that border each other, you got a lot of divided households. You know, it's, it's one of those jokes that people make about all the car tags down in the South, but although vanity may be a bit overstated, there, there is some validity to it. So let me ask you about this. I've been thinking about rematches too, okay? Last year, Georgia A&M. Last year, and to go another conference here, Penn State loses at Minnesota. I I want to see some flips here. I, I, I want to send Minnesota to Penn State. Penn State just took Kirk Soraka, that they're the offensive coordinator from Minnesota. And, and I want to see I want to see Georgia have to go to Aggieland and go play over there. I mean, a hundred thousand fans or not, it's still not not an easy trip uh to to make. I mean, a little bit easier <laughs> without fans in the stands, obviously. But like those just in my mind stuck out as two potential like a rematch and, and revenge opportunities. Think about this too. Like we were talking about this in our in our editorial meeting the other day. The spectacle, the potential spectacle of just deciding this format. It's likely that they'll bungle it and and not capitalize on the spectacle of it. But if they were to do like an NFL schedule release, and if you're going to let's just say best case a ten game conference slate in the Big Ten or the SEC, you know you're playing your division, so that's six. But that is leaving four sort of wild card opponents for LSU or four wild card opponents for Georgia. How are they selected? Is it just blind lottery? Is it, as I've heard Brandon Marcello suggest, is it kind of looking ahead on who you would have played over the next few years and trying to work it in that way? Who goes where, who, who, who gets left high and dry with no return trip when we return the schedule back to normal? Like that would be new, fresh, salivation-worthy content that we haven't had in quite a while. I want it to not be a blind lottery. I want it to be a lottery where, where like the, the AD of Ole Miss draws the ball. And does he have the guts to not pick? Well, they already play Vandy every year, right? Like, does he have the guts to not pick South Carolina? Does, 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 now, granted, he's not going to sell any tickets, probably, if we're assuming there's not going to be fans in the stands. But, like, if you're him, do you say, hey, Give me Georgia, right? Like I, I want that top matchup, or do you think that? Do you think they're like, hey, give me that that? There's no automatic wins for Ole Miss, but give me that close to automatic win. You know, if you're if you're Alabama, and it's it's not it's not Mal Moore anymore. It's uh, oh, what's his name? Um, Burn. If you're Burn, does he say, give me Vandy? Like everybody's I, gonna call call Alabama chicken. Like th- this would have some real drama, man. 
I mean, well, the first thing Ole Miss would do is ask for Bama, and then they'd be told, you get to play him anyway. And so then Lane Kiffin would leave the room, and then Ole Miss would just continue with their normal business. Um, you know, that that has a chance to get really heated really, really quickly. I, I can see the road you're going down there, and I am in the passenger seat right along with you. I, I mean, I, I, I want to see that for sure. A uh, couple other ones I had here – I. I'd like to see Oregon, Utah, although I think Utah, I mean, they lost so much off their team last year. I would like to see Ohio State go to Wisconsin just because I feel like that's probably the best chance that they could like actually have a little more drama to their season, you know, and and make that make that race just a little bit more competitive. Uh, but other than that, I it's harder to pick. Clearly, like we're not going to mention any Big 12 teams here and why, because they already already play each other. I just realized I had to write a long form about this and it was mm. There's no real Big 12 games I can suggest because they already play a round-robin schedule. Uh, maybe Arizona State-Washington could be interesting. Two defensive-minded head coaches who are, are, are recruiting you know, fairly well. Although I guess Washington fans have a little trepidation like we covered a couple weeks ago that they might not be recruiting quite at that top level. I, you, know what, you, know what, you know what else I wonder, though? <clears throat> you know, If you're tossing around the scenario, which I think a lot of people inside the league offices still are, you know, like the SEC and the ACC kind of holding out hope that maybe we can have a window there. After we get all of our requirements out of the way, we can have a one or two week window with which to get in some out of conference games. If you're structuring it that way, uh, number one, does everyone play an out of conference game or do some teams take it and some teams just leave the weeks vacant? And secondly, if they do, does that mean there's an extended period between the time you wrap up your conference play and the time you hit conference championship Saturday, does conference championship Saturday stay concreted into the spot that it is set aside for? Like the season is basically being talked about right now as one big accordion where we can expand or contract as needed. And so you just, I don't know if anyone, including the decision makers, I don't know if they really know how that plays out. I totally agree. I think if you polled them just anonymously, if you ask them like their confidence level for playing like game one, game two, game three, probably goes up a little bit like this. If you guys are watching on the YouTube version, my hands going. And then like when you get to like game six, seven, eight, nine, ten, I don't think you're gonna have any ADs out there tell you even privately that they're confident that they're gonna play 12 games this fall. But I think a lot of them think, hey, we can get six in and fulfill this contract over a 14-week period. I, man, I would love to have the non-conference games preserved, kick some to the end of the season, and just even if you just tease me, lie to me, right? And just say, man, if we get through these conference games that we have scheduled, we can go ahead and play the, the, this non-conference rivalry at the end if we've got all our conference games first. It's kind of like, hey, if you eat your veggies, you can have your dessert. And it also doesn't make you look necessarily weak in the eyes of anyone right now because you can look back and say, even if it doesn't happen, you can look back and say, uh, did you forget? We were the ones that scheduled the games. You remember when everyone was canceling everything worldwide? We were scheduling the games, and it just turns out that fate's not going to let us play them, but we certainly wanted to play them. It just leaves an option on the table that it, it doesn't take any kind of added effort to revisit whether we're going to play Georgia versus Georgia Tech in late October than it does visiting it right now. Exactly. You mentioned that you would like to see Clemson play North Carolina and North Carolina got some pretty big recruiting news. Uh, was it end of last week? I think it was yeah. uh, Tony Grimes, five-star cornerback for the 2021 class. Uh, I think with his 96 rating, he'll probably end up being a four-star uh, corner on, on the composite. Once, once we slot him in, he has elected because Virginia 
uh, seems, can we say unlikely to play a high school football season? Or it, it, I think that's safe, yeah. Okay, so unlikely to play a high school football season in the fall. Congrats to him, awesome student. To I mean, we, we see a lot of these guys try to cram all these classes in in their final semester in the fall. For him to only be one credit short, he knocks out this government class, and he's enrolling at North Carolina right now. Just, I mean, only, what, two weeks after he committed to them, that's a really big get for North Carolina. And we can talk about the impact if we want, but it also kind of got me thinking, man, could this start a trend? And my, my content brain starts going like, man, this would be great if it starts a trend. I'd love to be able to talk about, you know, more stories to write about. But also the dudes you'd like to see in college football, you know, right now. Because there's some high school guys out there I think could play D1 ball this fall and, and not be out of place. So take this wherever you want to go. The first thing I wonder, you remember, it wasn't all that long ago when the concept of an early enrollee was still pretty new. And it was one of those deals where you talked about, hey, there's this there's this one kid at Alabama. There, there are these couple of kids at Florida State. You know, they're missing their prom like they're already on campus for spring ball. Then half of your class ended up doing that. Then for the blue chip kind of programs, a majority of your class was doing that. And so you wonder, OK, well, then what comes next? And I guess what could come next is maybe people looking at what he's done, what Tony Grimes has done when they're in 10th grade and saying, I could be on a track to doing that. And while it's true that a lot of you know true freshmen in college are not built to play in the NFL right away, you and I occasionally see 10th graders, especially at certain positions that could make an impact. 11th graders and especially 12th graders could make an impact right now in their junior, senior seasons if they were at the college level. So the first thing that hit my mind is, I just wonder, is that isolation? Like when a um, kid from Montezuma, Georgia, linebacker, committed to Georgia, held out, very big name, and I'm blanking oh, on uh, it. Not, not Rice. Um, the, oh, the, the, the guy for the Bears. Yes. Oh, what is – This is embarrassing. Gosh, how do we not know – Like, We're not editing this out either. We, no. we deserve this. Oh, the, the man. Dude, the dude who got a ton of money for the Bears and, and was, was really smart about, about his rights. Yes. Yes. Well, he, so he took his – but it was – committed to UCLA, if I recall, and then didn't go to UCLA and then took it all the way until it was basically time to make a decision. And everyone was worried, okay, well, is this going to make signing day irrelevant? Well, it didn't. Like a, a majority of guys didn't go that route. So maybe a majority of guys want to enjoy their senior year of high school, at least part of it, and they don't go this route. But I always wonder, like, how many people are paying attention to this? How many people latch on to the concept? Now, the question is, is there actually – clearly, like, if, if you make it – Roquan Smith. Roquan Smith. There we go. Yes. And then also, uh, Demetrius, uh, who's still on, on Georgia's Robinson. team, I think. Yeah. He he committed to Cal, and then was he going to sign, or was he just going to enroll? There was some stuff there as well. What Was he going to delay? He delayed his decision, I believe, for a while, didn't he? Yeah, that was weird. That was that was a kid out of Savannah. He went out there, and then, uh, like, to- his brother was there. But as soon as he went out there, like the word around the state, you know, it's like a water cooler, an entire state was, uh, he's not a fit out there. Like, I don't think that's going to last. And lo and behold, it didn't last. So, Josh, I think there's a risk reward play here, right? The reward is Tony Grimes can get to the NFL as a 20 year old if he goes and balls out at Carolina. The risk is that he's entering college too quickly. Right. And I don't think he is. I'm just saying, just in, in general, hypothetical prospect here. Like, you might have better film to get drafted high if your college years are played at ages 19, 20, 21, as opposed to ages 17, 18, 19. So you really have to kind of balance that risk and reward. There, 
there are a couple guys I can think back through history who I thought, yeah, he, he could play right now. Um, Dalvin Cook, seeing him in the state championship game run for like almost 400 yards against Armwood, a team that was loaded with D1 stars. I, I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't really think he needs to, to play this high school, high school year. Uh, by the way, if you guys can find this for me, there's a hidden film that I want to find. Dalvin Cook did not play ninth grade ball for Miami Central. He still played Optimus Club ball. And I really want to see these probably the most ridiculous highlights ever, right? I've heard about <laughs> I it, but imagine I imagine so. Like, I want to see him kill Optimus uh, competition as a ninth grader. So him that, and then DJ Williams, a guy who signed with Miami, he was out of, was it Sherman Oaks? Or it was one of those, those, those California powerhouses back in the, in the 90s. Um, I, I was talking to some college coaches, and they're like, yeah, he's a guy who could have probably gone and been a special teamer in the NFL at 18. I was like, okay, that's, that's pretty solid. That's lofty. We got some guys in this year's class, though, who I, I think could actually impact college football in, in a non-insignificant way this year if they could just do this. And my guy would be Travion Henderson. I mean, obviously, Ohio State lost, lost their top running back to the NFL. Man, I'm going to be bold here. I think Travion Henderson would start for Ohio State from day one if he was on their team this year. I know they I just got think, Trey Sermon, but I don't think you're alone there. And I like that's one of those positions when, when you talk about transitional high school to college. When you talk about that journey, I mean, we're not talking about left tackle necessarily. Like you're talking about a position where skills translate very readily if you're talking about top end skill. And you know, quarterback. It used to be sacrilege to even suggest that. But then more and more, I mean, we had that stat. I don't know what it is right now, but like there was a decade long period where. A majority of the national championship winning quarterbacks were first year starters, if not freshmen, first year starters. So like all of a sudden it became in vogue to suggest, hey, all of a sudden now kids can come out of high school with the way offenses have been simplified and they can play. And I don't know that the two that I came up with necessarily fit that qualification, but the two I was looking at were J.J. McCarthy, who is a Michigan commit, and Ty Thompson, who is the Oregon commit. And the reason that I'm looking at those two names is because those two programs are thought of as preseason top 15 caliber, depending on which poll you look at, maybe even top 10 caliber programs. But I don't necessarily know that I see many people mentioning either in championship or playoff conversations. And it's because of question marks, maybe other places, but mainly question marks at quarterback. And everyone, it seems like I talked to, well, let me take that back. Most people with Oregon that I talked to, like they're really looking forward to Ty Thompson. They saw him at Elite 11. They loved him. They're really looking forward to him. And it's kind of, we'll be good before he gets here. But when he gets here, it's like this secret key that unlocks another door for us. And I think Mich some Michigan folks, I got some Michigan buddies who feel the same way. Now, I know maybe they're fairly high on McCaffrey, and I'm not saying he's going to bomb this year by any stretch of the imagination. But I mean, if we're asking the question, what does it take to fulfill the potential of that fan base's expectation? I think the ceiling of a J.J. McCarthy is probably a lot more likely to do that. Would we get that from him in what would be his senior year in high school? I have no clue. But those are the two names I wrote down. Josh, that is bold going quarterback. And I agree with you, though. I think the, the situation uh, and fit at those schools makes your, your scenario very interesting. Like, Not to... to you know, crap on Dylan McCaffrey. I, in fact, I think he probably can be a good player. I don't think he's going to be the savior there. I think if he was going to be that level of player, he probably should have been able to beat out Shea Patterson, who didn't have that great of a year last right. year. Like there were, there wasn't a big quarterback debate, if I recall, in the preseason last year. Everybody thought it was Shea, and I just think we would have heard like, "Hey, this is really close. Like this is going to go down to the final week 
of training camp, and we we really didn't hear that. So maybe it'll be wrong on McCaffrey. We, we get we got a I think we got a four star review on iTunes, I, I believe, for uh, for not uh, showing the love to McCaffrey. So we do like McCaffrey. We don't love McCaffrey, and All he right. does have an iTunes account, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Or family. I mean, we know he's got, he has known family members, right? I mean, it, it, you know. here's, the, here's the way to look at that. I had this done to me one time and it just opened up new doors. When you're trying to make the case for a quarterback that a lot of people think is good to be elite or close to elite, just ask yourself this. Like if you're a Michigan fan, if you took McCaffrey right now and you made him the quarterback of Penn State, how much more scared would you be of Penn State? And the answer is probably not that much at all. So if you put him in someone else's uniform and you can kind of strip the bias and strip the emotion away and ask yourself, like, how scared would I be if I had to play him? The answer is probably not scared of McCaffrey. Probably not scared. Respect him. Probably don't fear him. And you got to if we've learned anything lately, the programs that are winning in the playoff, they've got the fear factor at quarterback. There, there's no doubt. It, you have to be so damn good at the other spots to, to just have a game manager to, to win the college ball championship right now. I mean, I think five, six years ago, especially 10 years ago, maybe you didn't, you could win it with a Greg McElroy or uh, you know, somebody like that. If you were just that much more dominant than everybody else, like Alabama was, but now with, with the way that the college ball rules have been designed and with the way that the offenses have reacted to those rules, because that's an evolutionary process that took a couple of years. It wasn't like just, Boom, you know, one year we, we, we saw this one guy do RPO and, and sending blockers downfield and screwing up the reach for these backers, and everybody knew what they were doing immediately. I mean, it took a little bit of time. People kind of thought what Hugh Freeze was running at Ole Miss was a gimmick, and it was really was not a gimmick. It was just taking advantage of how the rules are, are drawn up and, and the realization that, no, no, for the most part, the, the, uh, the official, you know, officials cannot catch blockers who are five yards downfield as opposed to three, and, and it's very much worth the risk of getting a penalty to get the reward uh, to get some of those defensive players way out of position to hit those explosive plays. Uh, you you now you got to score like 40-plus points consistently against, not against great defenses, but against good defenses. You probably need to be able to hit that 40 mark, and it's hard to do that with just a game manager at, at a QB. You're right. Look, right now the best example is Georgia. Georgia's not recruiting at a good level. They are an elite elite recruiting power right now. And they didn't have merely a game manager at quarterback. I think people would describe Jake Fromm as maybe a tick up from what a Greg McElroy had been from a talent perspective. And yet you saw them on the field against LSU. Now, granted, they were a little bit banged up by that point, but defensively, they were pretty much full go. And you saw what they were. And listen, but they didn't play a bad game. I was sitting there watching the game in person. They didn't play a bad game and they still got totally drowned in the second half. So ask yourself this, if that approach cannot be perfected by one of the best recruiting powers in America, how should I expect my program to be able to do it? And they were grabbing the hell out of LSU. Like their plan was basically <laughs> like, guess what? We're going to grab. And it was Belichick and the Patriots against the Colts in the snow. Like you're not going to call us for every single flag, right? Like you'll call a couple and then we're going to get away with a lot, a lot. And LSU still dropped a ton of points on. Them. I mean, it was that I, I think that that made it, made it very obvious. I, I've got, I've got some questions about Georgia, about do they have the same – and this is not on our script. It's just something I, I wanted to bounce off, Josh. I've been thinking about it a little bit. Do they have that same, like, internal hunger and drive to be what their 2017 team was, right? 
Like, because I think there, there is sort of an attitude of inevitability, but the attitude of, of inevitability, like the logic says, yes, they will win a national title under Curry Smart if they recruit this well. And I think they probably will. I'm still on that side. But if, if all these recruits go in there just assuming it and they don't have necessarily that same work ethic of it, like that's kind of the magic that Saban has brought to Alabama is not allowing the entitlement and, and the assumption of inevitability, like making sure that everybody knows that you do have to work for it every single year. I'm interested to see how Kirby Smart handles that. It'll be interesting. Here's why it, it's why it is so important to win a championship when you get a shot to win a championship. So when they went to the title game out of nowhere, seemingly from a national viewpoint in 2017, it was eerily reminiscent to me just from an, a flying altitude perspective. It was reminiscent of, to me of being around Auburn in 2013. Like Auburn got there when no one thought they were going to get there. And so they come close, that close, just like Georgia came, that close to winning a title. And the feeling, I remember being on talk radio the next morning or the next day in Columbus, Georgia, talking about Auburn. And Auburn folks were of the opinion that, dude, that hurt. It hurt bad. But if we just got that close in year one under Malzahn, like imagine limitless opportunity in the future. Like we'll, we'll take several more swings at that. That was as close as they ever got. With Georgia in 2017, we don't know how that turns out, but they got so close. And I'm of the belief that you don't have to win a championship for a certain level of, I don't know if complacency is the right word, but it's the word I'm going to use in lieu of finding a better term to sneak in. And there's this feeling of inevitability, like you said, that sneaks in and it's normally born from winning a championship. Like I've heard Nick Saban talk about before, you know, when I got to Alabama, we had a bunch of kids there with the mentality of what can I do for Alabama? Then we won and we started recruiting a different kind of player. But what we allowed to bleed into our locker room a little bit was kids with the mentality of what can Alabama do for me? And you never know, like that 2017 Georgia team had a lot of no pun intended, a lot of dogs on it. Roquan Smith's one of them, a right. lot of dogs on it. And it, that's a neck up thing. You don't rate that in all likelihood, but you don't even get that measured properly in a recruiting rating. Like how are you going to cut a dude's head open and really know how they're wired inside and in their heart and in their mind. And they had a lot of guys exit, but you just assume because the assembly line keeps pumping four and five star guys in there. Hey, it's inevitable. And maybe it is, but the closer you got to Georgia's program, the closer people were that you talked to, they said, hey, I mean, we're excited as anyone else for the future, but we're losing a lot of really good dudes off this team. And to answer your question, I don't know. It's just, it's so important to win them. Like LSU last year won a championship. Transcendent team won a championship. Think about how much differently we would feel right now if they fell 30 to 27 to Clemson and now they were watching Joe Burrow and a historic coaching staff and roster exit. And now they had questions about Miles Brennan and questions about replacing Joe Brady. And they didn't have a national championship in their back pocket. That, that is to say night and day is, is the understatement of the year. Exactly. And I, I think Kirby can do it. And, and I think going out and getting Todd Munkin and, and putting the effort forward to score more points and, and you know open up the offense more is, is a step in the right direction. In my example... And it was actually the team on the opposite side of, of 2013 Auburn, right? Like that 2013 Florida State team had been back when Jimbo was like fully engaged and really into it. He had recruited and they they constantly beat him over the head. Hey, you guys can't play with the SEC. You guys can't play with the SEC, yeah. you know. And when you talk to him after the national title game, 
that that was their thing. It was like, hey, we we really went out and proved it. And that 2014 team they had was more talented than the 2013 team, but it didn't have Lamarcus Joyner, it didn't have Telvin Smith, it didn't have Timmy Jernigan. It, it, there were like important leaders at each level of that defense that the actually like the guys who replaced him were probably just as talented in many cases, but they didn't have that same, you know, who's going to knock on the door at 6 a.m. to make sure everybody shows up to workouts thing, right? Like who's been here to lose to, you know, NC State or to hear that, you know, like like who's been here who got crushed by, you know, that, that last Urban Meyer Florida team that, that, that was worth a damn, right? Like that type of, of internal hunger. Uh, and I'm interested to see if Georgia can can combat that type of thing. But hey, They've got two quarterbacks now. This is what we call a segue in the business, and we've had a couple. You also mentioned guys changing jerseys, which which, which uh, we could have segued right there, but we we dove into this. News comes this week: JT Daniels gets a waiver to be immediately eligible. Uh, Manners, your 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 guy who lives in Georgia part time at least now. What what are your thoughts on this? Well, it's a big deal from several angles. It's obviously a big deal because. You could make the argument now Georgia's got the best quarterback room in the SEC. You could also take a different track and say, like, if you think Bryce Young, our number one player in America the last cycle, like if you think that he is going to be a two-a-level star, then you can have him and three tomato cans in the quarterback room, and you could say, hey, as long as he's on the field, we got the best quarterback room. But at the very least, Georgia's quarterback room now, when you've got multiple elite options – it's night and day different than what you may have had a few years ago or even last year. So if you look at every preview magazine, bud, Jamie Newman's on the cover of it, at least for the regionals. And if you look at every article about Georgia, every video we've done about Georgia, it's Jamie Newman, Jamie Newman. And now the, the feedback that I kept seeing when this announcement was made is, all right, JT Daniels, eligible. Now, either people at the very least expect a very strong position battle or maybe just outright Daniels to start. Now, that's not necessarily the way I feel about it. Like, if I had to place money on this one way or the other today, Jamie Newman would still be the guy that I rode with to start the season. And I've spoken to some people close to Georgia. Um, I want to be careful with how I phrase this because I can get myself in a lot of trouble saying what I don't mean. But when we're talking about those intangible elements, for example, the, the, the qualities the 2017, 2017 team possessed in mass, everybody in Athens knows, at least they think they know, Jamie Newman has that. I don't know that they are sold on JT Daniels from that standpoint yet. Talent is not necessarily a question, but it's the intangibles that you want because they, listen, this last year's Georgia team, they lost a lot of those dogs off this last year's Georgia team. And you've got to replace that with something. And ideally it would come at the quarterback position, but also Aside from the intangible nature, you and I, I know we're going to talk about this right now. Like, do, do any of us know that JT Daniels is even ready to play? I haven't seen him. I mean, he, he tore his ACL. Was it game one last year or game two? It was very early. Either way, you're close to right. Now, look, some guys do bounce back from ACLs in like 10, 11 months. But that's not necessarily the rule. It's not a 10-month injury. It's still generally you know, 12 to 14 months, sometimes a little bit longer, just depending on, on, on the complications of it. Uh, he's not a guy that has to cut a whole lot, so I would assume that he could be close to healthy, but that's an assumption on my part. It, it's not based on anything uh, that I know specifically about his case. We were discussing in the editorial meeting the other day 
what if we do an article on the top players who could benefit from the season being delayed? Basically guys who got hurt mid-season last year or who got hurt in off-season conditioning or spring who might not have been ready to play come September, but will likely be ready to play come October or November or more ready to play come October or November. And I think Daniels would have been uh, been number one with a bullet most likely there if we had known that he was going to be immediately eligible. Now, this just makes me so much more confident in Georgia's quarterback position because I know both these guys have talent and I know that the winner of this beat out somebody who is legitimate competition, whereas I don't think there's legitimate competition at the quarterback position elsewhere on that roster if you didn't have Daniels for Newman to battle against, assuming that Newman's healthy. I mean, I remember, and it, it just, and you know how rarely I use this word, but it flummoxed me. There you go, write that one down. When this announcement was made, when Daniel's transferring, when that announcement was made, I was very surprised, as surprised as I've been in a long time at the sport of college football, that I looked at our inbox when I was getting ready to do that next episode of Late Kick, and I had some Georgia fans actually questioning the decision to take him on Kirby Smart's part because they said, ooh, man, like, what does this tell Jamie Newman? And what if this decreases the confidence level of other guys in the quarterback room? And it's like, are, 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 these, are these emails coming from the actual planet Mars? Like, do you, do you have no concept of how the elite programs operate? The elite programs, man, like you, if you're not being told in the living room, I'm going to try to recruit guys just as good as you. Like at the second you step on campus, I'm getting kids to try and take your job. Like if you're not being told that you're being lied to, because whether you're being told that or not, they're trying to do it every single day. So it's so nice. Like it's why I don't take part in this whole quarterback controversy talking point that a lot of other people, that's a road a lot of people go down. It's not a controversy when you have multiple qualified options. That's just called depth. It's no different than outside linebacker. It's just depth. Exactly. I, I, I totally agree with you on that. And additionally, those Georgia fans, do they not realize who their head coach is? Like he is from the Saban model. Jimbo does the same thing. We're just trying to get as much talent in here as we possibly can. Now, if it was Dabo, I do think Clemson operates a little bit differently. And some of these teams from a fit and care, and this is not like saying JT Daniels doesn't have character, but like I know for a fact that Clemson spikes a lot of kids and will not take them because I've talked to their coaches about this. And, and like, I, I know like they, there are certain kids they just won't take. Right, because they they really value that that overall kind of cultural fit of their program, and their player development speaks for itself. And they clearly have a recipe that they like. It's not that they don't want to foster competition, but it's like we have eighty five scholarships. We will give five or six of them to knuckleheads, but they better be the best, like most talented talented dudes on the roster. And if we're going to have the other seventy nine balance out those six, right, to where. They kind of feel that shame if they're acting out because the rest of us are, at, are, are pretty much in line and doing the right thing. I'm not saying that, that kids at other programs are not doing the right thing, but it's very clear that like Georgia's method is let's stack talent and let the talent compete against each other. Like, period. That's, that's what they do. And that's just another example here with the quarterback position. And they have a window to win now. This defense, yeah. like this could be the best defense Kirby Smart has ever had, including the defenses he coordinated at Alabama. Look, I'm of the opinion that you want to talk about a, a shift in the overall direction of college football. Oklahoma was, I think, ahead of the curve in a lot of ways on this. I'm not saying they're the first program to ever take a high-profile transfer, a quarterback. But, I mean, like they got on a roll there for a little while where it just looked like Lincoln Riley 
he was going to give the cursory look to the high school ranks for for uh, quarterback talent. But man, like they essentially outsourced their quarterback recruiting and development to other college programs and then let them get ready down there or over there. And then we'll take them here. And the thing about it is, you know, you can only be an A plus in so many categories. And let's say you're, you're an A plus defensive staff, you're an A plus in your overall recruiting, but let's just say maybe either your quarterback development or the talent evaluation at the quarterback position. Let's say you're a C plus in that category. That doesn't mean that it's going to be handcuffed and it doesn't mean it's going to be a handcuff for you for the end until the end of time. If you're a program like Georgia, like I'm not sure JT Daniels is the first and last time they do this. I mean, if they've got everything else humming and the transfer portal becomes a more attractive option year over year for quality quarterbacks who just don't like the situation they're in. I don't know that they don't visit this every offseason. They have a guy like Brock Vandergriff coming in five-star from the high school ranks, but it's like you said, like we just said, that doesn't mean that they don't look elsewhere. And so you just keep stacking and stacking and stacking. And when I know they are very burned by the Justin Fields, Jake Fromm thing. So that's the fear in the back of a lot of people's mind is, well, what if, what if we get talent on campus, then we choose the wrong one and the right one gets away and he goes on to rub it in our face and we watch him in the playoffs while, you know, we're at home. I understand that. But like, I mean, are you going to let one perceived bad decision impact your decision making until the end of time? That's a great question. I, I would say clearly their answer is no. Also, with the quarterback position specifically here, we are not seeing transfer players go high in the draft at any position but one. Mm-hmm. And that one position is quarterback. And I think part of it is because it's probably easier to determine who the best player is at your non-quarterback position because it's so much based on athleticism, you know, height, weight, speed, and, and the technique which you can evaluate. It, I do think there's a certain, like, when the lights come on aspect to quarterback play to, makes it diff- more difficult to choose who is the right guy. You know, it, for instance... I know that Jimbo was seriously torn about Jake Coker and Jameis Winston because Coker had a really good fall camp that, that year before the, the, the 2013 season. And then obviously he transferred. He won a national title Alabama, but they're not similar players. And, and I know that because of private conversations he had with guys who he doesn't know. I know, right? Like he was seriously torn. Now he ultimately he picked Jameis, but it was fairly close. It can happen at quarterback that is close. And I, I think Georgia will continue to try and get get the best quarterbacks in the transfer market because they should. Like that's the one position I think you absolutely should be constantly looking at it. And maybe somebody didn't evaluate their guy the right way. Maybe here's a question for you. Speaking about fit, if Munkin is at Georgia two years ago, are they starting a true freshman fields? Is that system more conducive to what Fields wants to do than, than what uh, than what Jake Fromm could do? Does he ever transfer? I think it's it's a really good question. It's the most fun kind of question because no one can be wrong because it's hypothetical. So, I mean, we do like an entire part two of the show on this. But it, it's always kind of – it rubbed me the wrong way a lot. When people who enjoy the benefit of hindsight wait a year or two years before they decide if something was the right decision or wrong decision. Because I'm telling you right now, like I got a bunch of Georgia buddies back home who at the time Fromm was starting over fields – had no problem whatsoever trafficking in message board rumors about Fields' character, okay? And so they were all on board with the decision, and then Justin Fields transfers, and they end up not winning a championship with Jake Fromm. And now all of a sudden, 
you know, Kirby Smart, he's got to show it to me, man, because he would, he was, oh, that was a serious error in judgment a couple of years ago. And what you're saying about Jameis Winston and Jake Coker, like that's a really, really good example to bring up from recent history. And I had a guy that, that may be in position to evaluate this kind of stuff explain it to me like this one time. You watch the overall trajectories of those two different careers. I mean, Coker won a national championship, so it's not like he was a bum, but you would clearly say Winston ended up being the more talented of the two with a much higher upside. I said, how could you not just see that? And Jimbo Fisher's a quarterback, offensive guru. Like, how can you not see that? And he said, if you stand at home plate on a baseball field and like you look at the foul lines and you just take it out to the edge of the dirt, so where the grass starts, like how far apart are those foul lines? And it's not very far apart at all. But then he said, let those lines continue till they get to the fence. And then how far apart are they? And I said, well, like an entire field apart. He said, sometimes, man, in, in the younger portion of a kid's career or in camp, and you're trying to evaluate two different guys at the same position, that's it. Those foul lines, they're very close together, but yet inevitably you let it play out. And at the end of the year, everyone in the hindsight quarterback position says, oh, look, it's not even close. No, it's not close once it plays out. But you don't make the decision after it's played out. You make the decision and then let it play out. I agree with you. Now, I will say with Fields, because I, I, I saw him at the camp he broke out at, right? It, it, was the, uh, it was the camp before his junior year, I think, in Orlando. And I was like, he looks like, like Russell Wilson hit with a growth ray. I mean, like he's really, really good. And everybody loved Trevor, and I love Trevor, obviously. But there was no doubt in my mind that in basically any other year that I've been covering this, which is over a decade now, Fields would be the number one quarterback in the class, right? Like, no doubt, if you stick him in any other recruiting class year, it just happened to be he, he grew up like 30 miles away in, in the same year as Trevor did. And I do think, like, when he wasn't hurt as a senior in high school, super good. For some reason, Georgia can't find a way to let him actually throw passes in the game and are using him kind of as like a wildcat quarterback. And then immediately for Ohio State, he's really good again. I, I don't. I, is it hindsight bias if I say like if the previous sample was elite, the one year sample at your place was kind of bad, and then immediately the sample thereafter is elite again? Like I, I understand there is some hindsight in that, but I also think it's fair to say that like it's pretty clear that the way they handled that was a mistake. Well, so to me, like the way I observed it being close to both programs at the time is Kirby's at Alabama and he is under Saban for an extended period of time where risk aversion is the name of the game at quarterback. Like they want to go the most risk averse route. Well, about the time Kirby leaves is about the same period of time where Saban sort of abandons that. And he says, okay, we're going to play talent at this position. That's a couple of years after that, the 2017 year was where famously, you know, he's finally convinced to bring Tua in at halftime. And then that changes the entire trajectory of the Alabama program. But like Kirby had that risk aversion built into his DNA. And keep in mind, this wasn't his third or fourth head coaching stop. It's his first stop. So he's learning the lessons that a generation ago you would have learned at Toledo, but he's learning the lessons at the University of Georgia. And so th there are no training wheels. Like you've got to do it on the fly. And so I just think that probably – he now looks back if you've got him privately and maybe he says the same thing that we're saying right now, but he also knows at the time, like with the way that I was wired and with what I thought I was going to be able to do and what I needed to do to win, I wanted to go the most risk averse and easiest route possible. And that was Jake Fromm to me. And in fairness, Jake Fromm 
had a really good for a freshman freshman season, right? And yeah. and he was not bad at all the the year that that they played him over fields. He just he didn't happen to develop as much last year into, into a top NFL pick, you know, like some thought he might. Do you want to uh, you want to skip the waiver discussion? I, f- I feel like we are we're, we're really covering a lot of ground here. Um, we have a little more stuff to get to. We, let's on the off chance that Barton doesn't get a whole lot of sleep, let's let's table that for maybe next week and uh, let's throw it to an ad break right now. We're just going to serve you some ads here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about 2022 recruiting rankings, and we'll take two questions from our listener mailbag. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky, are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are, number one, I think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen. All right, welcome back. So, Josh, I know you're on these rankings calls with us pretty frequently as we do at 247sports.com. They call a marathon. Like, what did you say there? You said Yeah, this last one was four. We had a four-hour call about defensive players in the class of of 2022. So, these guys don't even watch film, according to message boards. And so, (laughs) we're we're just really trying to – Trying to just run out the clock on our weekly time here. Listen, it's Stop. it's hard. It, it takes four hours to throw around all the biases that allegedly are in the room. And it's just like, hey, I'm invested in this program. I'm invested in it. No, listen, I, when I started working here, obviously I got access to those rankings calls. And I'm not on the recruiting council, but I always tell my audience, I sit in on these things just so I can knowingly dispel all of these message board rumors that I used to see all the time. Like you hear rumors about so-and-so loves this program and so-and-so is invested in giving this team a bump. And it's like, it couldn't be any further from the truth. Like these dudes are going at each other's throats in these rankings calls about how maybe a guy's 10 spots too high. And maybe like the number 14 and 13 dudes at this position group should be flipped. If you don't believe that there is painstaking work put in, on the back end of what you see, just the front-facing recruiting rankings, you are willfully ignorant at this point. And I can tell you from firsthand experience. And, and that's not to say that we don't value input and feedback from college coaches either, right? Like I've got college staffs who will tell me, man, you guys are so off on this kid's ranking. And maybe we are. Or mm-hmm. on the flip. But the thing is, I don't pay attention to those staffs if they only tell me the ones we're low on, right? I like the staffs that'll tell me, all right, hey, you got you guys messed this one up. This kid should be, easily be a four star. By the way, I kind of agree with you, and I'm surprised you didn't drop this kid more because he can't play, and we're going to drop him as soon as we kind of smooth some stuff over with his high school coach and, and we get in on this other guy. But I'm excited about these class of 2022 rankings because we have some impact players at some really impact positions and. The, the position group that I was specifically assigned to to review, and we, we review them all, but there's, you know, basically you lead the discussion on a certain position group and we go around the call. So 
Gabe Brooks, our, our, our Texas Midlands uh, analyst and myself, we, we took defensive ends. And I didn't know how good the defensive ends were going to be in the class 2022 until we dug into this. And I felt myself, I was like, dude, am I just a homer? Because I see three or four, maybe five guys who have legitimate five-star potential in this list. Like, this is, this is pretty crazy. We already have our number one player, Shamar Stewart, as, as a five-star type. And then I think there were three in Texas alone, like, like Omari and then, and then Malik Silla. I, I looked at him and said, okay, like 6'5", 240, could bend the edge, already converting speed to power. He's actually whipping guys who are very legitimate D1 prospects in their own right at offensive tackle, uh, playing at the highest level of Texas football. If you don't like this DN's class for, for class of 2021, you, you got something coming for you for 22. This is a loaded group. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're looking at sophomore film, correct? Yeah. You are looking at sophomore. Do you imagine, man, like I was not a small kid in high school. Like I was probably well above what the male height and weight average would have been at my high school. We didn't have 6'5", 240-pound 10th graders. I'm just telling you, we, we barely had kids who could bend around a corner in the hallway. We didn't have 10th graders bending the edge at high-level football in the state of Texas. So I've always wondered, like, just walking down these high school hallways, when you see these offensive tackles, like a Marius Mims at Georgia right now, what is it like oh. to walk down the hallway with him? But to get back to what your point is, it's, it's funny how on the high school level, it seems that there are hot years for positions. Because you see that in the NFL draft, but the NFL draft is such a smaller sample size relative to the – you know, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of high school players you have any given cycle. And it's always been weird to me. Like you would think the pool's big enough where you just have a certain number of really good to elite guys at each position each year with maybe some outliers. But it sounds to me like you're saying night and day difference, 2022 cycle versus 21 cycle at that particular like edge rusher position. Yeah, it's, it's really good to see this many guys this early. Right, because they're probably not going to go anywhere. Some of them may not turn into five stars, but these kids we think have five star potential are probably not going to end up as three stars. And yeah. most likely, there'll be some kids who emerge later um, that that we don't even know about right now. You know, at offensive tackle, for instance, we know uh, a shockingly large portion of players who go like first round offensive tackle didn't actually play offensive tackle to their junior or senior year of of high school. And so I'm I'm looking at it and I'm saying, guys. Don't worry if there's not a whole lot of guys we like it off to tackle yet. Most of them are playing other positions, and they'll they'll grow. And then it's it's those elite athletes who grow into off to tackle size who end up being those special players. But yeah, I think DB is or excuse me, DE is very good this year. Andrew Ivans, our, our Southeast Regional Analyst, uh, he did defensive backs, and man, deep defensive back this year is loaded. Like Damani Jackson out of California, he's just an absolute dog. Um, Travis Hunter of Georgia, down in your neck of the woods, really, really nice corner. Earl Little Jr., I think, is, is, is a, a very nice player. By the way, remember that Marvin Jones played for yeah. Florida State? Yeah. You know, it was probably the last linebacker, maybe Arrington did, to finish, well, I guess Mate Teo, to finish as like a legitimate Heisman finalist. Mm-hmm. His son is like 6'5", two and a quarter, and pretty freakishly athletic already. So that's a name to watch out for. Marvin Jones Jr. 2022 class? Yeah. Wow. All right, let me write that down. Mm -hmm. Let me me ask you this. Um, 
no one knows how it's going to play out necessarily, but like we've potentially got an extended time of high school athletes being away from normalcy. And so with college, it's a lot more regimented. I mean, you're already dealing with more developed athletes, but at the high school level, maybe not so much. And I wonder like, um, like if you know how, like sometimes if you're in science class and like they cut down a tree and you're looking at tree rings and like they could point to you, Hey, there's a drought year right there. Cause you see how the rings different and it's thinner or it's fatter. Is there any concern or have you guys even discussed in the evaluation process, looking at a guy's high school career evaluation wise and noticing that gap, like that different looking tree ring on a guy because he missed very critical development time in the 16 months between his 10th and 11th grade years or whatever. Like, I wonder if that's something that's actually going to be a thing you have to look at down the road for kids who are in high school right now. I, I think it will. I, I, there's a lot of implications for this. I mean, I texted Barton the other day, uh, you know, good, good luck with the delivery and whatnot, but also, Hey, we probably should not be putting out our final rankings yeah. until March. If, or, or maybe until April, if a, a large number of states don't play high school ball until the spring. I mean, imagine, imagine evaluating a sample set where half your states are playing high school ball in the fall and half of them are playing in the spring, and you're putting out your final rankings in January. Like that, that's incomplete. Uh, and also, if you did put them out on a regular schedule, what the heck are you going to evaluate for 22? Like you, you haven't seen some of these 22s in, in forever. So I think from that standpoint, it'll, it'll matter a lot as well for us evaluating. Flipping it on its head, though, for schools, if we don't move signing day, I don't think we have to move early signing day, right? I think there's some kids that know where they want to go that schools will green light to take. And maybe schools will be a little bit more conservative about who they take this year in December. We'll see. And I don't think you need to push back early enrollees. That's fine. I don't think if we're playing mostly, mostly ball in the spring, I don't think we need to have February signing day. I think we should move that probably to April just for this year so that everybody can kind of get a really good feel for where they sit how good they are, be able to see you play as a senior. Because if you don't, I think what we'll see is a pretty ma massive transfer wave both up and down because the bust rate and conversely, the rate at which maybe a school like a Bowling Green signs a kid they shouldn't sign, right? As far as way too good for them, he wants to transfer out and transfer up. I think we'll have a, a tremendous transfer market about you know 18 months from now if, if we force all these kids to sign without playing their senior years. Well, I mean, if you don't do that, like the alternative is multifold one on the negative side, as you said, I don't think it's a very difficult pitch to coaches to say, do you really want the wave <laughs> of consequences that are going to inevitably come from this? Number two, I've heard you talk about this before. What you're essentially doing, if you keep the signing dates as they are right now, early is fine, like you said, but keep the regular sort of finish line signing date as it is. What you're doing is you're doing the equivalent for a lot of programs. If you have high school ball interrupted across the country in the fall, a lot of programs are doing the equivalent of like what Texas used to do voluntarily, which is take a bunch of dudes before their senior years even start. And you don't know if you evaluated kids whose ceilings are a little bit lower. Like you are, you are self handcuffing yourself to kids junior years being the conclusion of their high school career. And the, Funny thing about 16-year-old kids and 17-year-old kids is like they continue to physically develop. And so you're robbing yourself of seeing that on a football field or in a camp setting if you just, for the sake of the way we've always done things, insist that 
we're going to keep that date in February. Now, selfishly, I hope it gets extended too, because it gives us a whole lot more to talk about in the spring period. But I mean, even if I wasn't involved in this, I, what is the good argument against doing that? So I, it's funny you ask. I, I actually asked uh, Dino Babers, the Syracuse head coach, this morning on 24-7 Sports Social Distance Chat. And uh, you can see that probably live Thursday or Friday on 247sports.com. And he said, you know, I really, I haven't thought about this. And I want to give you an answer that won't get me fired. <laughs> he said, I, I think we should keep the December one. But I agree with you, there's probably some upside to moving the February one, right? Now, the thing is, this won't matter if all these coaches just try to gobble up all the commits anyway in December, right? Like this, right. this only matters if, you know, you're, the coaches are willing to kind of save scholarships and, and continue to evaluate and maybe like th- that's risky for them, but it's also potentially rewarding. And I think we might see some variance in terms of strategy, whereas now there's no variance. Now, now the strategy with the, with very few exceptions at, at the G5 level, some of them kind of wait, but now the strategy is let's sign everybody we can possibly sign <laughs> in December. And, if, the, if in December the big boys won't allow you to sign a scholarship, you will probably find some school. Like, let's say Ohio State says, no, we want you to wait. Minnesota might say, yeah, come yeah. on. So then Ohio State's kind of put in this spot where, like, do we green light this kid? Do we not green light this kid? I, I would make it to where you can only sign in December if you were an early enrollee. For that's this fair. year only. Yeah, that's fair. Because I don't want to deny you the, the opportunity to enroll in spring, but if you're going to be like a June enrollee, I think you should you should probably wait this year. Listen, if I were a June enrollee, and I mean I had all five of those stars next to my name, and especially see how things have evolved in normal years, anyway, dude, do you remember when we were doing the National Signing Day show in February? How we were saying how are we going to fill three hours? Now in the end, it didn't matter. It was easy to fill three hours, but like we were we were able to write down in one column the huge signings, like the dudes who are left out there uncommitted, man, you want to talk about brand appeal, take it to February children, take it to take it the distance. They're going to save a spot for you. If you got that many stars next to your name. Also, uh, the national letter of intent is intended to protect. First of all, it's mainly just intended to protect the schools, but it is largely intended. It kind of helps the prospects who are like your mid-level guys. If you are a five-star recruit, you really should never sign because the benefit you get of locking in a spot doesn't really help you. No school that actually wants you is going to say, hey, sign or we're taking somebody else. They're yep. going to say, hey, five-star Josh Pate, you don't have to sign. Just enroll at your earliest convenience, please, and you can do so. So if you're a five-star, there's no way in hell I would ever sign a letter of intent. I don't really get the benefit. Of it. Now, I might sign scholarship papers. I might sign some scholarship papers or some financial aid papers with three or four schools you know, just to allow them to continue talking to me after the period ends. But yeah, man, I, I think that I'm holding out hope that this year we don't have this thing where all the kids sign in December. I wonder when the first conversations will even take place about potentially altering the back end of the calendar. Like, I don't even know, I don't even know when that happens. I, I don't know either. Now, the thing is that the stated purpose of the early signing period right now that the NCAA kind of trumpets is that it allows kids who already know where they want to go to not be bombarded with call calls over the Christmas holiday and, and or you know December holidays and whatnot, and, and that's that's fair. But I think this year is just such a unique situation that maybe we should look past the, the stated purpose and, and and maybe look at more of what the potential ramifications are 
of it and, 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 and alter that some. Also, I wrote about this yesterday. Juco season, getting moved to spring. People don't know this. A lot of Juco's redshirt the first year they get on campus at junior college, and then they play their second year. Uh, if this gets moved to spring, how the hell are we going to recruit Juco's? You're going to go back to the high school tape only if these kids want to enroll in December? Either that or you're just going to have to trust the highlight film they send you from their backyard. <laughs> like You're going to have to be evaluating TikTok film. I don't know what else you do, man. Like No one has an answer for that. What is the right answer for that? I I don't know. I, I do know it's complicated. And I also know talking to some, some guys who are in athletic departments, they're a little concerned about some of these junior college kids getting their credits because a lot of yeah. these JUCOs are underfunded like crazy and they're not really set up to excel in distance learning setting. Uh, so that's <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and now I mean, maybe they'll just rubber stamp. Everybody gets A's, you know, let, let's all go home happy. But uh, if they don't, that, that could be a potentially a problem. Man, we are, uh, we're looking at an hour. I think, I think we will save the, these listener questions for, uh, for the next one. Although let, let, no, 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 let's, let's knock out one. All right. Let's, let's take the one. You're a broadcast guy. The orange Mamba, he left us five stars and he said, Hey, Barton and Butter, good fit, informative and entertaining. My question What are some of your favorite college football broadcast teams, both of past and present? <sighs> okay. So, one of my favorites that I don't, I see them sometimes, but I don't see them put on those lists quite as much was Ron Franklin and Mike Godfrey. And, you know, Ron got run out of the business for saying some things he shouldn't have said, but like when he was on the call, man, that was a really good pairing. And Ron Frank, Ron Franklin is one of those guys, bud, that sometimes I hear criticism of guys like Chris Fowler and the criticism when you hear criticism of Fowler is like, it feels like he is, you know, a college football fan talking. It feels like he is, he is broadcasting us, but he is not of us. Like, I mean, when, when he's done with that college football game, he he's turning on tennis. Right, right. Whereas, you know, Ron Franklin, like it's, it's that dude is, it's woven into his DNA. And so that's the kind of broadcaster that I think appeals. And it doesn't work across the spectrum of sports. Like what works in Major League Baseball doesn't necessarily always work in college football. That's why another one I think is really good is Sean McDonough. Sean McDonough is a guy who translates that very well. And it feels like you know, it feels like you know him. It feels like he is speaking to you instead of to a huge audience you're just a part of. I, I totally agree with you on that. Um, one guy who doesn't do quite as many games anymore, you remember Dr. Jerry Punch? Oh, yeah. He, he, he was good. Uh, I like Musburger and, and, and Jack Root back, back when they were, you know, back, back when they were together. That, those are always good ones. Um, Keith Jackson is obvious. Like, if you're a younger listener, go back and listen to some Keith Jackson games. I was working on something today. Uh, Keith Jackson thinks the 1967 USC UCLA game is the best game ever played, and it's it's. I want to go back and watch this thing because it's it's UCLA's quarterback was a backup who who ended up having broken ribs in the game and still threw for 310, and then USC uh, their quarterback audibled uh, on third and seven from their own 25 or something to to give OJ Simpson the ball instead of throwing a pass, and Simpson houses it to win the game uh, for USC to send him to the national title, which does sound like a pretty awesome game. Look, if, if Keith Jackson told me my name was Stephanie, I'd call my mom and tell her to check my birth certificate. He, what he says just goes for me. When you ask me the question, if you grew up in the South, especially, like, it's not just the South, dude. If you, if you grew up, like we're in our mid-30s, so like you grew up 
seeing sort of the tail end of Jackson's career, but also all the VHS tapes that your dad owns or like your uncle owns, like it's all, he is, he is the backdrop for all of the big time college football games. So much so that I just assumed everyone knew about him. Like I go past Keith Jackson and you just assume, okay, he's, he's on everyone's Mount Rushmore. Let's fill out the rest of it. Like what's, what's the second, third and fourth level of the totem pole. Another guy who, who wasn't perfect, but I, I really did enjoy him on the broadcast was Vern Lundquist. Because, like, Vern Lundquist liked the SEC, but he didn't buy into, like, you know, the SEC is the best conference by a mile every single year. And he also would poke fun at, at his employer. And so I go back to 2003, and this, this is actually not even a football thing. It was during the basketball championship, and they had Lundquist, pretty sure this was Vern, uh, calling the game. And I forgot what game it was, but CBS had, like, one of those, like, in-house movies and it was either, I think it was Spring Break Shark Attack or Locust, <laughs> right? But so he had, so Bird had to read the promo for this. And he's like, don't forget, uh, at, at 6 o'clock on, on the East Coast, after 60 minutes, it'll be Locusts. <laughs> and it, and it, not only he realizes his mic is off, and he's like, what the hell is <laughs> Just, wow. Yeah. Oh, man. It, it just always stuck with me. Like, that's, that's live TV for you, right? I like, um, you know, if you work in our business for any length of time and you broadcast or you like, I did talk radio in the South before I started doing this. So like every Monday morning, people want to talk about two things. They want to talk about that Saturday's games and how much they hate Gary Danielson. That's the two things that they want to talk about. And so I've never had a problem with Danielson, never had a problem with him. I always loved Vern Lundquist. And like, for me, my teenage years, early 20 years, that's the soundtrack with which I remember for a lot of the big games I grew up watching. The reason I, I never cared about the criticisms of like Vern Lundquist and Gary Danielson is because a lot of the criticisms would be like, oh, he's stupid. Well, why is that? Well, like he called Rolando McLean Orlando McCain one time. Like, I don't really care. I, you're, you're, not, you're supposed to get the names right. I've got it. He gets the moments right. Like Vern Lundquist nailed all the moments. There was never a time where a big play happened that determined a game and ultimately someone sees and then you watch the replay and say, you know, Vern didn't really bring it emotionally there. Like he was always there. And with Danielson, the reason that I've always appreciated him is because a lot of the folks who can't stand Gary Danielson are people who should really be listening to the home radio broadcast of the game. Like Danielson's a dude who is in full degaff mode when he's in the booth that's the kind of guy i like i don't need someone i agree with all the time i need someone i like someone who will be a little bit critical of my program every now and then because there is no perfect program so if you're going to be honest by default there are criticisms for every program there are players that anyone would get attached to like they slurped tim tebow for three years so did everyone else like who wouldn't have done that unless you were a georgia bulldog fan or fsu fan right exactly Couple other guys I like. I think Brock Heward does a really good job uh, as, as someone who's a, you know a little bit a little bit younger, more more contemporary. Um, just from being around a lot of the big games, you know, in the Southeast and and you know, somewhat nationally, like you notice people who really work for it. And like Holly Rowe mm -hmm. could just slack off if she wanted to and doesn't. You know what I mean? Like she's there early. Like like she's she's working the sources. I think Maria Taylor does a really good job of that. Too. I don't think people realize how hard it is to do sideline stuff and do you know, like do, do broadcast stuff and, and pregame. Like that's a really intense schedule uh, that, that they keep. I, 
if, if you want to know how broadcasters, if you want to know how good a sideline reporter is, I, one of one of the names that we have listed already told me this one time. If you want to know a good sideline reporter, just look at what they're wearing on their feet, because some people are there for style and some people are there to get in work. And if you look at like Holly Rowe or Maria, like people like that, they may do their intros and they may do their stand ups wearing heels or whatnot. But as soon as that ball is kicked off, it is the quickest footwear the the best and most comfortable fitting sneakers they can find because dude you are you are putting in some work you're going like i witnessed one time you know you'll have an injury and you'll be on the opposite 30 yard line and they'll be in your ear telling you we're coming to you for a 20 second hit after this next play and you don't even know what happened so you gotta you can't walk across the field you gotta hoof it through the end zone and then you gotta get over there you gotta get an update hopefully from a trainer and also bud you have to go on national tv and you have to talk with without doing that right there. That's not easy. It's hard. It's barely easy to do a podcast like that. It's very hard to do it on the field. And and, and most broadcasts do not staff two sideline reporters. No, they do not. I mean, they used to sometimes, but nowadays they, they, they don't. I mean, national championship will have it obviously, but for the most part, they don't. That, that is, that is really, really tough. And it's hard to get information. I mean, like, like if you're doing the SEC, there's a good chance you're doing like a Saban game and like, good luck getting one of those trainers to say exactly what it is to you. Right, like, All right. Hey, I'm, I'm out of breath. I'm reporting it's a lower body injury. Well, <laughs> thanks. Uh, we, we saw that on lower the lower extremity. Now it's a lower extremity. And like the throat slash has been banished on the football field, but you still see it on the sideline. When you ask for health updates, you'll get it all the time. <laughs> no doubt, man. Oh, by the way, speaking of uh, broadcasters missing moments, do you know Keith Jackson actually missed Woody Hayes punching the Clemson player? Tell me this story. No, I do not. Yeah, it was, I, I was looking at his wiki or as wiki this morning. Uh, him and I think it was Frank Broyles. Uh, they were in the booth when you know when Woody Hayes obviously punched the Clemson guy and eventually got fired. And they had limited replay capability. And Jackson and his his uh, you know analysts said that they didn't see it happen on the main feed in in the booth, and they weren't able to show it to him in the booth with the replay capability that you were seeing on TV. So Jackson really kind of got got reamed for this. That like they thought he was just being protectionist of a head coach who he was friendly with who happened to punch a player uh, out of the opposing team on the sideline. If you guys don't don't know what happened, just Google that. Um, but his claim was always like we couldn't see in the booth and we didn't see it happen on the sideline. Look, that's the other thing. That's the reason I never criticize people butchering names. If, you, if you'll ever go in these booths, like um, uh, McDonough allowed me to be in their booth for an Auburn game a couple years ago. I stayed in there for like a quarter. And then uh, the Clemson A&M game last year, I stayed in there for a little while. It's not that we live next to each other. He's just very open about that stuff. If you could see the chaos, not even controlled, just utter chaos, that is a booth. You have two spotters. You have a production truck in your ear, and they're talking to you constantly. And imagine trying to talk, not to someone, but to four million people, trying to talk while simultaneously you hear three other voices you'd probably screw up your mom's name eventually, much less a roster full of like 200 names that you started memorizing Thursday and like then you got another game coming up the next week. It's just if they nail the moments, you've got a good broadcaster. Forget about them butchering names every now and then. Exactly. And, and they, they can't get too excited about every moment. Like they have to be able to dial it down. You have to have waves with a crescendo, right? If they're constantly excited all the time if their voice just you know peaks every single moment it's almost like they're 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 too anticipatory of a huge moment like you have to be able to realize and i also like a good broadcaster can shut up at the right time 
know what I mean? If if you go back and look at Jackson, it's Vince Young scores. And then he just like lets lets the Rose Bowl play for a couple seconds. And that's hard to do because a lot of these guys have these canned calls, which sometimes work out great and sometimes don't. Like Jackson famously had, you know, hello Heisman if Desmond Howard had done something that was, you know, Heisman worthy in that game against Ohio State. But that's the other thing is like just allowing the, the crowd and, and that to tell the story at times can be really powerful. I thought the most beautiful call, one of the most beautiful calls I ever heard from Sean McDonough, this is not even college football. I know we're going like way long here, but I grew up an Atlanta Braves fan. So like I was of age about the time the Braves started their run of consecutive division titles. So it was just insane to be like six, seven years old in the South at that time. And so 1992, game seven of the NLCS is when uh, Francisco Cabrera line drive through the five, six hole. Sid Bream takes four minutes to score from second, but he slides in and he's safe. And everyone in the South remembers Skip Carey's call. It was so legendary. Like half people still have it on their ringtone. And so Sean McDonough was doing the CBS feed. He was doing the national broadcast. Sean McDonough's call of game seven, Sid Bream slide, look it up if you want to, of the 1992 NLCS, His voice cracks, number one. Number two, it's just he gets in what you need to know. He puts a a giant bow on the moment. I have goosebumps. It's 95 degrees outside. I got goosebumps talking about it. And then there was like five minutes of silence. And it was just Atlanta, Fulton County Stadium, letting you know we're going back to the World Series. And it's just Sean McDonough sitting there going right along with you, just looking to the left, looking to the right. But it was, oh, it's such a great call, man. Oh, man. I'm going to say a name. I just want to see how you react. Eric Gregg. Don't, don't do that. Listen, <laughs> listen. we've had a good day. I think we've had a really good day. Eric Gregg should be absolutely ashamed. He's no longer with us. But Eric Gregg committed what I think should be considered felonious activity in game six or seven of the 1997 NLCS. Travesty. Tra- tra- it is nothing short of a travesty. The strike zone was wider, if you're watching on YouTube, than the split screen we have. Look at how wide that looks, bud. That's much wider than a home plate. And uh, it's on there. Just just Google Eric Gregg. That's all you have to do. Two Gs on the end of Gregg and like 17 Ks on the end of LeVon Hernandez's stat line because the plate was like, uh, it was basically two home plates that day. And it, it wasn't a spring training game. That was to decide who's going to the World Series. Insanity. It was warm, though, man. It was hot in South Florida. Like, you know, it, it's, yeah, things it's, expand, don't they? Those strike zones expand in that warm weather. Yeah. About two bathtubs high and three wide, man. That was... <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe that. And it's, it, it got to the point, if you'll look at it in succession, you'll see guys like Fred McGriff and Ryan Klesko. Eventually, you've got, you've got guys being punched out, and they're just looking back. They're not even arguing anymore. It's just disbelief. And it's like... Not are you on the take, but how much money did they pay you? That's essentially the question that was uh, left to be asked. Connie is DMing us right now. Uh, ETA for Barton and Bud Files. Uh, So I'm going (laughs) to tell him like two minutes. (laughs) Awesome. All right, buddy. Enjoyed this. All right, man. Hey, uh, it's your fault for talking so slow. And that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. is over. The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount+. Plus. What brings you to The Shy? Opportunity. Everybody get down! Walk right up to the side. A new rain is coming to the south side. Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job. 
The Shy. New episodes now streaming. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash The Shy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with the Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. The subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply.